When I first started earning money and, and investing in real estate, it, the reason I got there is because I didn't have the money that I could invest in passive funds. So I built this career in real estate. Now I'm at the stage of my life where I have a lot more money and I've started investing in funds. And I'm asking myself, is there someone who could manage this better full time? Do I want to make this a career moving forward? If the system's working and you have that, that multiplier effect, keep going. I think knowing yourself is really important really kind of looks at motivations in your life, what you really want, what you're afraid of, taking some time to really figure out what are you about? And therefore, what are the activities that you're really about? How do you want to spend your life and what type of people do you want to be with? I think those are the really big things. So if you can align your business interest around that, that's probably a pretty good line. Hey there, and welcome to another episode. My name is Pascal Wagner, the host of the Grow Your Cashflow podcast. If you're new here, we help credit investors grow and diversify their monthly cash flow through low risk private placements. To be clear, we're not financial advisors providing you advice on your specific financial situation, but our email list, our social content, and this podcast are all designed to help you learn how to find and vet passive income investment opportunities. So that's someday when you're looking to grow your cash flow that you'll consider working with us. And even if you never invest with us here, at the very least, we wanna help accelerate your ability to gain financial freedom. So with that, let's dive in. Hey, Vincent, welcome to the Grow Your Cash Flow show. It's great to have you on here. Thank you, Pascal. I appreciate being able to come on. Yeah, man. So uh, just to quickly start us off, can you give the audience an idea of who you are and what you do? Sure. Vincent Belagia. I'm out of Austin, Texas. I am wearing cowboy boots right now, so it's important to know. Uh, I am the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Stallion Capital. We run uh, private debt funds and we deploy capital into the Texas real estate markets. So right now we're focusing on the I-35 corridor between Dallas and San Antonio. So we're putting a lot of capital out there, uh, but it's a really interesting market right now. Uh, everything's a little bit slower but we still have a ton of demand. So just interesting times. Uh, yeah. I've been doing this since uh, 2007 and, uh, and having fun with it. Every, every day is, is a new challenge, uh, but I've got a really good team and uh, just really blessed to, to be here and to be in business. So Ed, but Pascal, what's going on in, in your world right now? What, what are you dealing with uh, in the cash flow world? Yeah, no, I love it. Uh, so uh, Vincent asked me this question right before we started, and I wanted to make sure that we covered it uh, on the show because uh, I, my answer to the question is I am very much in the middle of sitting in between the active world of real estate management and passive. And uh, I, what I was going to tell you is like, I'm, I'm going through this phase where I have, I have a portfolio of 12 properties in the Atlanta region that I do house hacking or co-living. So um, I rent them out by the room. And uh, I've hired a third-party property management company. And I'm, I'm now kind of just researching and figuring out like what does it look like to bring that in-house. And I've very much been... The thought that's kept coming across my mind has been, do I maybe sell that portfolio and put it into completely passive deals? Um, or like, do I like having the, like, you know, half of my income and portfolio being active, uh, just being a real estate investor myself and, and really 
making the jump to being completely passive. Have you have you had to deal with that in in your investing journey? To- so we we have three funds. Two of them are are kind of our, our bigger funds. These these real estate debt funds. The third one is like an Airbnb fund. So we bought in, I think we have twenty nine active properties right now in Dallas, Austin, San Antonio. We've got a couple more coming on in Port Aransas, which is this Texas beach town. And we're trying to figure out and. And, and honestly, we've we've had pretty decent performance over time, but the ROI isn't what we've wanted to see. So we're thinking about selling about half the property. So we, we pare it down to probably 14 or 15. We're in that process, but right now it's kind of the busy season. So we're taking all the income out of the properties. And what we found is, is we, we've had a property management company that we've been using now for about a year and a half. One of the issues that we've had has been really accurate pricing. Because on, on the STR side, uh, and, and I would imagine kind of in this co-living side that you're talking about as well, I don't know how long your, your leases are, but uh, getting the price as high as possible without decreasing your occupancy or market share is kind of that game. And so we've had to do a lot of in-house pricing, and then we've had to do some in-house maintenance. And then we kind of ask ourselves the question, okay, if we're doing in-house pricing, we're doing in-house maintenance. Should we just be doing in-house property management? Oh, this is exactly right. the thought that's going through my mind. This is like what I'm dealing with. Yeah, it's it's it, and, and it's hard because we'd have to do that much more, but our pricing hasn't stepped down as the services have stepped in. And so we're thinking, okay, you have to have a champion that is really going to be owning this thing, and I don't want that to be me, right? It's not. It's exactly. not going yep. to be me, right? Yeah. So you have to have, have to have someone who's who's really leading that, um, and then you're really kind of looking at VAs. And so uh, the gentleman that I have running that fund, his name is Colby McGee. He has his own STRs uh, in Tennessee. He's got a bunch in, uh, I guess, the Blue Ridge Mountains that are out there, and, and they're doing well for him. He is the guy that runs them, but he has, I think, two VAs. And uh, and then cleaners that kind of just work for him. So he has to be somewhat active in that. But he saves, and we we pay. We we really have a pretty good price for our property management. It's about a twelve hundred dollar flat fee per property per month. And of course, that's over you know, thirty properties. So you're talking about thirty six thousand dollars a month. And I would say at that scale, it probably does make sense with all the things we're doing to go ahead and bring in some VAs and have a champion here. That's doing that because that's you know that's, that's a good amount of money, um, and I think the service is 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 just tough, and and that's one thing where we've struggled. I mean, property management. We're not property managers, right? But we've had a hard time both on the multifamily side and on the STR side of getting people to do to, to care about it as much as. Well, I think actually the incentives are misaligned. I think is the realization that I've had over the last. Uh, I mean, six months, it's just like as a property manager's portfolio grows, your percentage of properties in it and the amount of revenue it brings that company becomes smaller. Uh, but if rooms aren't filled or if it's not properly managed, it's, it's much more painful for you as the owner to, to have unless you have an in-house person where their uh, income or compensation is kind of like tied or, or you just manage it differently, right? It, it's true. I, and I just think that no one will care as much as you will. Then kind of that next level is no one will care as much as your in-house staff. 
and then you kind of fall fall down to the property manager and then maintenance everything else. So I don't know Ken McElroy very well. I joined uh, his collective group over this past year and got to spend some time with him. And he owns, I don't know, maybe 15,000 doors right now. I could be off on that by a few thousand. But but I was surprised that he does all his own in-house property management. He doesn't use any third parties at all. And he was saying the reason for that is no one cares as much as he does. No one cares as much as his staff. So you might have, you know, a nicer life having just that, that kind of passive income and, and, and not messing with it, not taking those phone calls. But your, your ROI is not going to be as high. And I just think it's kind of about the lifestyle that you want to have. Do you want to have to deal with it or not? And what is the delta? But you should also know that it's not just the revenue or the profit that, that you're making. It's also the condition of the properties. Because we've also found that, that no one cares about the revenue as much as we do. No one cares about the expenses, right? That's all the financial side. But no one cares about the condition of the properties like we do. And, and so, you, you know, so we, we just had our crew for, that's here in, in-house go up and do a Dallas tour, which Dallas is only three hours away. And with every property, they found deferred maintenance. With every property, there were issues that would have been covered by the deposits given by the short-term uh, renters or the guests, right? But if you don't have someone going through those properties and really looking to see what the issue is, then you're not able to capture any, any, any money from that deposit. A little bit different on the long-term side. But no one cares as much, right? So now we might have $10,000 of, of uh, deferred maintenance on a property, maybe $15,000, where really that should have been coming out of those deposits that were made and that would have been taken care of through Airbnb. But if no one's there to pick up the slack, you just lose out. So it's a dilemma. What do you, so Pascal, what do you want to spend your time doing? I guess that's really the question. Yeah, yeah, no, I, it, it's a it's a good uh, question, and I, I think it trades into how much time or focus do I want to put in in what I'm doing. So I think this kind of ties into why I'm interested uh, and invest so much in these funds, like the funds that you run, uh, because what I'm finding is that. If the incentives are aligned, like if, if, if you're primarily, you know, someone who's a fund manager who's primarily compensated based on performance, um, I just feel like my money's more well taken care of, right? Cause if, if they crush it, uh, that, then I crush it. Um, and right now for me, it's been a question of mind space. Like, okay, uh, this takes up some time to even manage someone in house. Uh, and, uh, I'm a big proponent of like do one thing and do one thing really well. And it's easy to say. And as someone, you know, in their entrepreneurial journey where, you know, I have enough money where I can place it in funds and earn half my income from there. But I earn, you know, I might earn between 10 and call it 13% in the different funds that I'm in um, on a cash on cash basis. I'm getting paid distributions every month. But if my, active portfolio produces that at the moment right now. And I feel like it's mismanaged. So to me, there's like, uh, you know, I could be making 18% cash on cash just because of the way that I've structured my investments. And so, you know, it's this trade off between how much uh, work do I want to put in to get that extra income versus put it away. I mean, I want uh, I'm focused on growing, uh, you know, this grow your cash flow fund. So um, that's where I want to be spending my time, but 
Um, I imagine for you, it's a similar question, right? Like it's, it's something I, I talk about when I, in my, uh, process of evaluating different funds to work with, like, do they only do one thing and do they really do it really well? Or do they do multiple things and like, do they have ways to compensate, um, with additional staff or with additional, um, I guess just like a bigger balance sheet to be able to hire the staff to, to have the appropriate focus on more than one asset class. How do you, how do you look at that inside your firm? Because you moved from, uh, not just having debt funds, but now also having this other portfolio. Like how did, like, what was the story behind that? And, and how do you think about that now? So I think the story really was that we've been doing the debt funds for, for quite some time really using more of an unleveraged model because it just is, it's kind of an all weather fund, right? So if, if it's, if it's rainy or it's sunny, you know, seven to 8%, maybe a little bit higher than that are the returns that we can, we can put out. That's acceptable for some investors. Some investors are at that, that seven to eight, some investors are at the 10, some are at the 12, some are like you're saying at, 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 at 15. Just kind of depends on, but there's all the, the risk is always correlated with that because in order to get totally. those high returns, you're always you're always leveraging the, the portfolio and and you're adding more or less value and there's always execution risk, right? So for years, we were having our investors saying, Man, you know, we like the seven, eight percent, but we're doing these multifamily syndications and we're we're getting a nice multiple on what we're doing, things are selling really well. And 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 so we, we might lose some money, might have some redemptions outside of out of the fund to go into some of those syndications. Well, now those same investors are saying, well, we, you know, we, we finally got our money back on, on this apartment complex that sold and the interest rates went up, the insurance costs went up, the occupancy went down and the rents kind of stayed the same. We'd like to get back into this kind of passive cash flow game. So it, it's always about what the alternative is, right? And, and you said, Pascal, that, you know, I can get 12% passively or maybe, maybe 13%. I can get 18 or 19%, you know, actively. Well, it's a 5% delta, right? So. What is that 5% worth? But to get back to, to our story, and it's kind of the, the same thing. It's okay. We thought, uh, well, we can get 8% on what we're doing pretty easily. If we could get 12, 13%, that extra 5%, right? What, what were we willing to do to go chase that extra 5% for our investors, right? Not just for ourselves. And we'd have upside for ourselves as well. And, but it's really like starting a new business because it's real estate, yeah, it's capital management, sure, but what you're doing to generate it is completely different. On one side, you're underwriting loan files and you are managing a portfolio of loans. On the other side, you're responding to, to guest issues. I mean, maybe the manager is, but still at the end of the day, it's like, no, you're in the hospitality business. Right. So it's kind of the question, is getting into the hospitality business worth 5%? Maybe, it, it depends kind of what your passions are. Uh, we had people and at what scale some, and, and at what scale, because if anything that you do on a small scale, is just going to take up a lot of time and resource. It only makes sense that to, to do it at scale. So when we started it, we thought we ran numbers and said, this only really makes sense at about $60 million of uh, assets under management inside of this STR fund below that. We're really not making as much money as we are in the debt funds. Uh, above that, we can have greater scale. So, you know, sixty to one hundred million dollars, and, and that's the total value of the real estate there, uh, makes sense. But then you've got to raise capital to get there, right? And, and if you're using seventy percent leverage or seventy-five percent leverage, you still have to go raise uh, easily twenty million dollars or so. 
for some people that raising $20 million is really easy. For others, it, it, it isn't, but you got to go raise the money. Then you got to go get the debt. You got to sign for the debt. You got to buy the properties. You got to set the properties up and you have to do a lot of stuff. Just so it, it, the scale helps, but, but then you need to test what you're doing as well, right? You know, Jim Collins writes about fire bullets and then fire cannonballs. Well, a $60 million fund for most people is kind of a cannonball. So you need to test out what you want, what you want to do with some bullets, but the bullets aren't going to be very profitable because you don't have the scale. So it, it's, it's, it's hard, man. It's, it's, it's like starting a new business and you kind of have so much energy. Um, and we do this, we do these things because we see that Delta of 5% or 6%, man, it's, it's like, we see it, is it worth it for us? It was kind of like, okay, our investors are, are happy over here on this passive side. This other one will be passive too, but here's an 8%. Here's a 12% tax advantages, things like that. And we thought, you know what, it's worth it to go do it. But even now we're essentially about a $23 million fund. And again, it really only makes sense at 60. So we're having to supplement uh, staff and things like that at this level and then make decisions about do we want to do active property management or not. And then you're talking about starting a different business, right? Because it's one thing to own the real estate. It's a different thing to manage the real estate. And managing 30 properties is you know, one, one person can't just go do all that, especially on a short-term rental basis. Maybe on a long-term rental basis they can, but short-term you can't. So it's just a lot of factors about what you want to do and where you have to be to, to be profitable. So I just think modeling makes so much difference getting into these things and, and, and then making sure that your models aren't lying to you. I think early on, some of our models that we were basing off certain properties would lie to us because they'd say, okay, here's your revenue, here's your expense, and here's your occupancy. But that was for that property, right? That was for three properties. And then you know, three properties doesn't equal 30 properties. And sometimes you have to do it to find out what really makes sense. So, uh, you, you know, trying to get as much experience on someone else's dime as possible makes sense. I know that doesn't necessarily help you with what you're doing because you have your own portfolio already. But I think for you, part of that question is, is 5% worth the division of my time and, and resources, especially if you can go get a 30 or a 40% ROI on your business, maybe not real estate, but right, that, that business operation, maybe in the real estate realm, that could be the way to do it. So it's, it, where do we want to spend our time? Where can we get the best ROI? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think about someone who's maybe had a recent exit or an inheritance or, or anything like that. They're, they're kind of, you know, sitting with this lot of money that they then need to figure out. Um, you know, I had, I had a, a huge Tesla position that, um, that, you know, I, I made a huge chunk of change on that I then pivoted over. And if the question then is just like, how do you deploy it? Right. That's the question on everyone's mind. How do you deploy it? You mentioned something earlier, uh, that I would love to dive in on, which you said everything's risk adjusted. So uh, you you said, okay, your funds generate you know seven eight percent. There there are other opportunities that offer more. There are some that offer less. How how does someone who's investing, like just take me or my audience, like we're we're here to learn how to assess risk and figure out what are the right investments for us. Um, like when you say risk adjusted, can you kind of like dive into that? from the frame of helping us decide on, you know, what risk we're willing to take? I, I, I can do my best. And so this isn't always true, but it's usually true. You just look at the number that's coming out, right? And, and things are different now because your risk-free rate is about five, five and a half percent. So that's a huge change 
than what you've had over the last, gosh, 20 years or so. Uh, and that's happened in the last year. So that changes everything. And, and usually to start taking risk, you need about a 3% premium. So when you start looking at investments that are not treasuries, they kind of need to start at eight. So that's put some pressure on our business, right? Because traditionally we've been at that seven and a half percent and eight and had a, had a very nice premium over the risk-free rate, right? 5%, 6%. It's not as big anymore. But when you see someone that's generating a 10 or a 12, uh, in the market, in, in different asset classes, everyone's competing for that same business, right? On, on the lending side, we're competing for loans the same as everybody else, right? We can charge so much money before someone will go to one of our competitors, right? And so the only way to, to kind of turn that up is to push more of the revenue that's coming into the investor, which is possible. You could have a better split. You could have a lower management fee, things like that. So you can, you can look at those, those things if you're looking at passive funds. Um, but if you're seeing a 12, like for instance, if someone's in our business and I see that they're paying a 12 rate, well, I just know that their, their money is leveraged. I, I, I know that they're, they're borrowing at least half of the capital that they're putting out. And if I see those rates now, I know that they're borrowing probably 70% of that capital that's going out. So when we talk to our investors, we let them know we're really not a leveraged fund. We have firstly position on everything. And our rates are up, but there's really only so high that you can go in the model that we use. If you want a higher return, we're going to have to leverage the position. But when you leverage the position, you lose your first lien position. You don't really lose it, but you're assigning it to another bank or financial institution. And so that bank is now in the first lien, and now you're in the second. Oh, wow. Okay, hold on. Let's, let's break that down. This is, um, sure. this is a nuance that I don't think I've, I've uncovered before. So what you're saying here is, um, we're talking about the the difference between a leveraged debt fund and an unleveraged debt fund, and and just to kind of recap, everyone like a, a debt fund is, um, you know, you're acting as the bank, Vincent. You're you're finding real estate operators that want loans from you in order to you know renovate or you know certain projects, and uh, and then you're earning interest on that, and then eventually they they pay you all the principal back after they've refinanced it into into a longer term loan. Is, the, is that, um, the, they, that right? they've either refinanced it or they've sold it. But yes, yeah, everything is right. Exactly how you said it. Yeah. That's okay. Right. So, so now there's a difference here where if, um, you're the one providing the loan, so you have the note that says, Hey, if, if the borrower, uh, who we gave the loan to doesn't pay, um, we're going to take over that asset. And, Whenever you, if you went uh, to, how big is your fund? So our first fund's about $75 million and the, the other two funds are about $30 million total. Okay, cool. So, so let's say for easy math, we're just going to use $100 million. So you have $100 million of funds. And if you went to the bank and you said, hey, I want, I want to use 50% leverage. I want to get, um, I want to get another $100 million. You know, I don't know. I guess you might get those rates at 7%. Right. Well, you, you, you used to be able to get them. Yeah. The, well, that, that's that's kind of the old rate, right? So, if you're paying Prime, you're at eight fifty right now, and you're probably and Prime. Prime. So, so Prime is the Wall Street Journal Prime. It's it's the kind of the established rate that's used across the country that a bank would give one of their excellent customers, right? And and now and so if you get a, a, a loan at Prime, you're usually doing pretty well. Sometimes you can get a, a loan below prime, which might be prime minus a half, minus one. But a lot of times you're getting prime plus a half or prime plus one. 
So if you're borrowing at nine or nine and a half, that, that delta is, is, is pretty small. Back in, in the good old days, a few years ago, when you're borrowing at three and you're charging 10 or charging 12, that's a great spread, right? That's, that's a really good arbitrage. And so the leverage funds makes a lot, makes a lot of sense. Now, your margins are much smaller. And so you might have a fund that, that is paying out 12 versus ours is paying out eight. But they've borrowed, like you're saying, maybe if you have $100 million of cash, you've, you've borrowed another $70 million. Well, that $70 million, if something, if something goes wrong in the portfolio, that has to be paid back first, right? So effectively, what you've done is put your $100 million of investors where, where they were in a first lien position, in an unlevered fund, which is, which is a good place to be. Really, now they're second to the bank because the bank has taken all those loans as collateral for that, that whatever that line is that they've established for you. So that line has to be paid back first. So if you see big real estate value fluctuations and you're in a hybrid market like Miami, like Florida, like California, basically the coasts are your, are your hybrid markets and you have a big value swing, well, your equity position really gets eroded quickly because that bank has to be paid back. If it's not paid back, you're wiped out. If it's unleveraged, well, you just, if you have to foreclose on the property, you sit on the property, you're not having to pay a bank, you wait, you turn it into a rental, you try to generate the income you can, and then as the market comes back, you can sell it. So you're under a lot less pressure. So that's why I'm saying that it's great to see a higher number. And when everything's going well and interest rates are low, people want to, people should go and, and look to say, okay, well, this, this fund does eight, this fund does 10, this fund does 12. I'm going to go do the one that says 12. We're always tempted to do that because we don't understand the risk that's behind those funds. And so if you have a fund of any size, that fund is dealing with the market and the market always sets the rate. And I'm just saying there is the risk on the other side of that, right? You can't get away from it there unless you're just in a truly disruptive industry uh, in, in the first couple of years. And, and, and really, you're an outlier. Okay, then good profits can be made. But you know, good profits bring ruinous competition. It always happens. And then you're back to the market. And as soon as you're back to the market, you have that rule of you get a certain number, you take a certain amount of risk. You want that 25% rate of return, you're going to take the risk. And, you know, I, I heard a great speech the other day. The guy says, you know, real estate is always location, location, location. He says, you know, that's not true. It's a lie. He says, real estate is always timing, timing, timing. And, uh, but at the same time, it's so hard to time any market, right? That's what, that's what we're seeing now. People that went all in on multifamily over the past year, everything looked good for so long, and then they just got whacked. So you always have to be careful with debt. That's the killer in real estate, debt. So I, I, I'm, conserv I, I, I'm conservative in, in a lot of things. I'm conservative with debt. When you're dealing with investor money, I don't want to lose it. I want to make them as much money as possible, but I really don't want to lose investor money. So. That's why we use the leverage models. I think how I want to think about this is like, okay, as an investor, if you're listening to this episode, the, the, the thing that comes to mind, at least for me, is, okay, I'm, I'm in my investment journey. You know, I've decided that I want to be investing um, away from the stock market, and I want to, I want to understand uh, you know, some of my investments a little bit better, uh, make, make a, a decision, and then ultimately have someone else manage it. But I need to decide. Uh, are leveraged funds uh, something that fit within my buy box for my investment, right? And so now as I'm looking at opportunities, 
I have this deal flow uh, weekly email where you know all the deals that I come across we put in there so people can, can see what what's on market and and part of that process should be figuring out okay do I want to am I comfortable investing in leveraged funds uh, and maybe getting higher returns and taking on that risk or or is that not uh, something that I want to do so what I'm what I'm hearing here is maybe this like in when times when interest rates are low and there's a much bigger spread, uh, it's maybe even safer to do these kinds of leveraged funds. But in times when interest rates are high, um, the spread is much smaller. And so uh, maybe thinking about um, leveraged funds is not the right approach. Yeah, I, I just think you have more risk because you have less slack in the system, right? You, you have less room for mistakes. Uh, and I'm not saying that a leverage, uh, a leverage fund is the right way to, to always go in a low interest rate environment. It's, it's still going to have more risk associated with it. But um, there's, there's more money to be made. There's more spread. And so it may be worth it. You know, one, one of the big problems that a lot of people have right now who are using either leverage funds or uh, they may just, just own real estate, they may own multifamily, is if they have floating rate debt and, they have, and they've taken debt out and that rate has gone from 3% to 8%. I mean, that's, that is killing your cash flow. You, you, are, you are almost certainly in a negative cash flow position because you wrote everything out at that lower interest rate. Um, I've seen so much of that happen with multifamily over this past year. And yeah. that can happen at the same time with a leverage fund, with, with whatever type of leverage model, is if you have floating rate debt, then you can get killed in this environment. Now, most people would say, well, the Fed cannot raise rates much more than they have, right? They've, they've had a couple pauses, and that could be true, but it may not be. And that's just it, right? If, 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 if you're using any type of leverage in, in, in real estate, if that rate continues to increase, your revenue is not increasing at the same rate. In fact, it, it's, you know, rent, rents have really kind of been flat. The interest rates that we can charge have kind of been flat over the last year. Um, it, it, just, it just puts you in a difficult position. So. Yeah, right now, be very careful. If, if you if you are calling the top and saying this is as high as interest rates are going to go, and the deal pencils, okay, fine. Still try to get some fixed debt. If you're you're just going to leave yourself exposed on the floating side, and and anyone that has a leverage fund, uh, unless it's you know, like a, a true real estate fund where you have long term debt that is fixed, the, the floating the floating rates can kill you. So you just have to be careful, right? Yeah, I, I think you make an important point there, uh, which is. When you're investing and you're trying to figure out different funds to invest into, whether those funds are through, you know, Vincent or uh, you go on Fundrise or Yield Street or, or whatever, uh, you need to understand, do, do I want that? Do I, uh, do I want something with leverage? And then do I want something with floating rate debt? And to me, I, I guess throughout my real estate investing career, I've always used fixed debt, honestly, because I, I never, I don't know, my mentors never used, you know, adjustable rate caps. I, it just kind of wasn't something in my scene. And uh, I'm wondering how, maybe I just wasn't as uh, aware of it. But to me, it feels like a much more conservative way to invest when you have fixed rate debt on anything. Um, because then you have time on your side. You do. And, and that's really the way to do it over a long period of time. That the problem is, that fixed rate debt on value add projects, right? So you're doing a rehab or you're doing new construction or you're doing development. 
it's hard to get fixed rate debt right now. Everything is, is floating in, 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 a, in, a, in a rate environment where things are changing. It's really kind of dangerous to put out floating. I mean, about two years ago, when we started to see inflation crop up, uh, we switched to floating rate debt for all of our borrowers. It really wasn't a big deal for them because they thought things would just go along as, as usual. But I saw what the Fed was probably going to do if the inflation problem persisted. And it did. So luckily, by the time uh, the Fed started raising rates, we had turned over most of our portfolio to floating rate debt. And so that gave a nice bonus to, to our investors. And, and even now, when we lend money, we, write, we, we will go at a floating rate, uh, but we'll put in a floor. And a floor is whatever that uh, is, is going to be the face rate. So let's just say that we put out a, a, a loan at prime plus four, which is effectively a 12.5% rate right now. We'll put a floor at that 12.5% level to make sure that our investors are secure, that even if the Fed starts lowering rates, that it's going to stay at 12.5%. But if the Fed continues to increase rates, which is maybe unlikely, but I'm not totally convinced that inflation is taken care of. I think Powell put out a comment today that he doesn't know that, uh, that they're going to stop uh, for, the, for, the, for the long term. Well, if you see those rates pop up again, you get the benefit of that as an investor. But if you're a borrower, that's going to increase. And so if you are looking at, at, at passive funds that do use leverage, you should ask the question, okay, what, what happens to your model if your source of capital uh, increases by 1% or 2%? Because I can tell you that, that, that no fund that uses leverage money like ours has fixed debt. I mean, if, if they do, sign me up. But, but everyone in that situation has to use floating because that's what's available in the market. You can get fixed on completed, finished real estate. But that's really about it. So uh, uh, maybe a nuance here. Uh, it, it, maybe the adjustable rate, you know, in my mind, originally, I was like, adjustable rate mortgages, terrible, you know, doesn't matter which way you look at it. Now, maybe through this conversation, I'm starting to pick up, well, it kind of depends maybe on what side you're on or how you use it. So if you're, if you're investing into a big apartment building, um, and you think, you know, you're not sure about what's going to happen to rates over the next year, then uh, investing with someone where they're using adjustable rate debt would be maybe not as much of a wise decision. But if I'm investing in a debt fund like yours, for example, where there is, uh, it's actually a good thing for me as the investor that you're loaning out adjustable rate mortgages because your downside is capped and, and the upside there's just more upside for me as the investor. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. So when you're borrowing, get a fixed rate loan. When you're lending, go adjustable. Just it, it, it just it's what makes sense. It's just it's hard sometimes to put yourself in that in that situation on either side because when you're lending money, everyone wants to borrow it fixed, and when you're trying to borrow money, everyone wants to lend to you at floating. But you know, be be disciplined. Um, a, a good friend of mine. He'll remain unnamed. He's a really good guy, uh, but he bought uh, probably about eighty million dollars of multifamily in the Austin area uh, over the past two years on a, you know, floating rate mortgages. Everything was penciling well early on when rates were low, and then he lost all of his investor money uh, because the rates went too high. The cat, the, the property started to to negatively cash flow. Investors didn't want to do capital calls, and now the bank owns the properties. Investors lost die they're in. And again, that's not a leveraged debt fund. His was a multifamily fund, but using leverage, and it's the leverage that killed him. 
And I think that most, most smart multifamily investors right now, instead of doing an 80-20 debt to equity, they're now down at 60-40 or maybe 55-45, which you're not going to get as much upside there. But you're not meaning like there's forty five percent of the value. Like if it's a hundred million dollar property, you're getting forty five million out in a loan, or or fifty five well, million out. Fifty five million, and, and you're going to bring forty five million. Which most people say, "Gosh, why would you bring that much cash?" Well, it's so that if the rates do increase, you can stand, and you're not going to you're not going to run out of money. You're not going to run out of cash flow because ultimately, cash is still king. If you run out of cash, you die in business. It's, it's unfortunate, but. That's how it is. I'd love to, you know, don't need to mention names uh, like you mentioned, but I, you know, one thing I think about is this idea of, of investors, you know, right now we're in a crazy economic time and to figure out what to invest in uh, is scary for most people, right? Are they, they're unsure where should I be putting my money? What if rates go higher? Like, uh, but you know, all this inflation is eating at, at my, the principal, maybe that I have sitting in the bank. Do you think that kind of uh, investment was avoidable? I mean, like, obviously, every every operator is out there raising money for their thing. And everyone's biased, right? Like, everyone sure. thinks their deal is going to work. And, and you know, I'm imagining this wasn't that person's first deal, right? They've been doing this. If they're able to raise that much money, I think one of the trends here is is that as an investor, you typically continue investing with the operator that you like. To invest with, it's true. Um, and uh, like, how do you protect yourself as an investor from making those mistakes? I mean, at some point, I imagine you know you just like your guy who gives you these investments, and it's been working. And at some point, it doesn't work anymore. Like, who's at fault? Is you know, you think that um, that operator has a chance to rebuild his career, or do you, you know, do you think people look at it as like? You weren't a good steward of my capital, or, or, you know, how do people recover from that? It's a really good. It's a really good question, um, and I'll, I'll answer the kind of the question: is Is it on the operator or is it on the investor? It's on the investor. Okay, uh, you know, but, but players are going to play, builders are going to build, developers are going to develop. That's what they do. Okay, um, and it, it, and you have to think about it this way: this, this is the pattern that you see. The first deal that you do with somebody, you do a ton of due diligence. You look to see all you do a background check on the developer, the sponsor, the principal. You look at all these things. You talk to people about it. You go kick the tires on the site. You do all these things, and finally you write a little check. You know, not not say it's little, but you write a hundred thousand dollar check, a two hundred thousand dollar check, and you worry about it, and you call the guy and all that stuff, and then you know what the guy delivers, and you get your money back, and you get your you get your uh, one and a half or two and a half x return. You're excited, right? You do the second deal. You, know, you look at it, maybe go kick the tires. You talk to your buddy who you know gave you all the money the first time, and you now you write a check for three hundred thousand dollars. He spent some time, and then he's got another deal, and and that deal's oversubscribed, and you're just trying to get in right here. Take my money really quick. I can't wait to get that other two and a half x or one and a half x. And then it happens again, and and you just tell him, hey, I've got half a million dollars ready for you. Whenever you're ready to do the next deal, you don't do any due diligence anymore because you like that hit on the backside. Times change. No business is good for all seasons. No investment class is good for all seasons, but you think that it is. So it's funny, you do the most due diligence when you make the smallest investment and the least when you make the largest. And then everything blows up because the economy changes. 
and you're screaming, oh, the developer stole my money. He did this. He had bad business practices. He absconded with funds. No, he didn't. He probably did not do that. You got sloppy with your investor underwriting. You, it became too easy. You took time off and you trusted. And you know what? The developer probably wasn't doing anything different than he did the first three deals that were awesome. It's just the environment changed and he couldn't affect it and he wasn't prepared for it. And you didn't care to stress test his financials. You didn't ask, are you doing a floating rate or fixed debt? Well, you didn't ask if, if the Fed increases the rate 3%, does this deal still work? And of course, you know, people would say, well, that's a black swan event. That's this, that's it. But it's not. It's not a black swan event. It's just the reality of what can happen. So astute investors are always looking at risk. And your more casual investor is always looking at return. Where can I get the best return? And they just have to understand that they walk hand in hand. And just because an asset class like multifamily had an amazing 10 years of a run doesn't mean the next 10 years are going to be great. Um, you know, we, we've had lower fund returns in, in our fund over time. Um, and, you know, we're, and now we're at a pretty steady eight. But it doesn't mean it's always going to be eight. We're going to try to manage that. But I will tell you that it's a little bit easier to be stable at a lower return rate than at a higher return rate. I mean, no one can go get 20% every year, year after year. Just just doesn't happen. I mean, maybe someone can, but uh, it's kind of like what you said with your Tesla stock, right? You, you made a great pick. You, you, you got a big hit, but if you try that this year, it's a little bit different, right? It, right. it doesn't always work. So the, the, the hard truth is it's on the investor. It's usually not on the principle of the sponsor. If you have, if you have a quality developer that's not misappropriating funds, that isn't committing fraud, he is just trying to do his best to, to make money for his, his investors to keep their money safe. But entrepreneurs were optimistic as people, right? We, we think this is going to work. We're willing to take the risk. And sometimes we're really rewarded with that. And sometimes we just get a little overconfident in ourselves. And it was nobody's fault necessarily. It's just we kept doing what we knew to do. And it didn't work this time, right? Builders are going to, you know, that's just it. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Yeah. No, continue. Gets, I... Yeah. Well, it gets back to what you said earlier, right? When you're talking about, you had your, your Tesla pop, right? You did great. You got this big bunch of money. Okay. Well, before that, and, and this is for any investor, right? You have this chunk of money. Are you going to go and get into real estate? Well, maybe. Do you have real estate experience? No. Do you have hospitality experience? No. Do you have business experience? No. But you want to go start a business? Or you want to go buy a bunch of real estate and start managing a portfolio? I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that I don't know if that's the smartest thing to do. Oh, you're a, hitting on a thread that I still resonate yeah. with. Yeah. It's like, it, it's like we, we do the things we know. I know, like, you know, the, the longer you're in something, you realize the less you know about it and the more impressed you are with other people that are really doing well. If I'm going to, if I, if I sell my business, all of a sudden I want to go get in the car wash business because I see the car wash that's super busy by my house all the time. It's like, that's, if I don't have any experience in that, that's probably a bad idea to take this big, this, this, this big pop, this big nest egg and go drop it into a business or drop it into real estate. Um, it's fun. It sounds cool. You're right. You're an entrepreneur all of a sudden, but are you really, do you really understand business? It might be a better idea to find a really good manager that does have a proven track record. Doesn't mean that it's going to work really well for you, but it'll probably work better. 
than you trying to do it yourself with no experience. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to keep entrepreneurs down. A certain breed of people just has to go do it. But there's probably better ways like fire bullets than cannonballs. Problem is people say, man, I was successful in this stock trade. I'm a great stock picker. I'm going to go all in on options. I can do all this. This is easy. It's not. It might be easy for a season. There was this one time. I'll just tell this quick story. No, I like it. Keep them. Yeah. You know, we, went, why was I in Vegas? Oh, we, when we had a, we had a snowpocalypse a few years ago in, in Texas. Um, and I was in Colorado. I was skiing and all the flights got canceled back to Austin. And we could fly to Phoenix or we could fly to Las Vegas. So I said, hey, let's go to Las Vegas. That's it, fun. So we went to a casino and we were playing blackjack. And I don't, I don't gamble. I, that's not a thing for me. It's not interesting. But uh, I had some friends that were there. We were all skiing together. So we all got to this blackjack table. And for about two hours, it was just crazy. We printed money. We could not lose. It was ridiculous. They had dealer after dealer after dealer. And, and, I, and I said, gosh, I can see why people get addicted to this because this is easy money. It's easy money. Like, we, I don't know, quadrupled our money in a couple hours. And it was, we're just laughing. Um, and then finally they brought in another dealer and then we started losing. And I made a rule. I said, all the chips in my pocket are staying in my pocket. I'm just going to, and I kept putting more chips in my pocket, right? And, and I just played with what was in my hand. And once I lost everything that was in my hand, because that, that new dealer, that last dealer took it, I said, I'm going to walk away with this in my pocket. And, and a lot of times, I don't, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I, I, knew, I knew two things. One, it was time to leave because that dealer was killing me. And two, that was like the worst gambling experience for people ever because it seemed so easy to do and to really make money consistently. It's not easy. It's hard. It can be a grind. You have times where things go really well and you have times when things are really rough. But, you know, we just can get overconfident with how easy something is. So, you know, I, I don't think I've played blackjack since then. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's not a thing for me. But I was just shocked that, you know, we had a two-hour run where we could not lose. Um, and, and I'm just saying as an investor, don't get into that blackjack mentality of, man, I've had a great run I can pick all these things, you know, we're just going to make these big bets. Don't do it. Bullets, then cannonballs, find systems that work and realize even with the systems that do work, they will work for a certain period of time. And then you have to change and adapt to the new system, to, to, to the new environment, to the new market. And that's what really makes a great entrepreneur is being adaptable and not being stuck in the old patterns and, you know, not having so much pride that you don't humble yourself and say, you know, like, what, I'm, what I used to do doesn't work anymore. I've got to change if I still want to keep doing well and being successful. So I'm, I'm, I'm preaching now. So sorry about that. But I resonate that. I, I think there's a there's a, a theme here and it kind of relates back to what we were talking about at the beginning with active versus passive management and, and things change. I, I very much resonate with uh, this point of view. I think unless you're trying to make whatever business you're going to buy or whatever a career and that's what you want to invest in time and become you know one of a great at uh it's you know buying you know i think when we first or i'll go back to me when i first started earning money and, and investing in real estate it, it, the reason i got there is because i didn't have the the money that i thought you know to invest in in uh 
in passive funds. And then, you know, Fundrise didn't exist back then where you could invest $100. And, and it was really my own way out. And so I built this career in, in real estate and doing, you know, co-living as, as I call it. And, you know, now I'm, now I'm at the stage of my life where I have a lot more money and I've started investing in funds and, and I'm asking myself, is, if, is there someone who could manage this better full time? And, and do I want to make uh, this a career moving forward? Like I've done it for the last 10 years, but you know, what got me here won't necessarily get me to that next level. And so, you know, it's, I imagine there's, I, I, I talk to a lot of people that are in this exact same scenario. They've built up a real estate portfolio and then they've maybe started investing in syndications or funds. And now they kind of span both. How do you, how do you, what, what's your advice or what's your personal opinion on like, you know, someone who's maybe started their career in real estate and is now kind of maybe shifting and trying to decide, is that what they want to continue doing or, or do they, do they put it with managers and, and focus on something else? It's, it's hard because it really is a personal decision. I, I, I think with me, if you have a system that works and the system is continuing to work and you can, you can get up every day and enjoy the things that you do and you can win more than you lose, then that's motivating, right? And if you can see people around you, if you're building teams and you're kind of scaling and you see people's lives improving around you, that can be really rewarding as well. But I think that, you know, if the system, if you see the system where, you know, you're, the money that you're getting out is kind of the money you're putting in, the, 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 the time you're, you're, you're putting in is kind of equal to, it, it, it's just kind of, you know, floating kind of neutral, that's when it may be time. I'm not saying sell the real estate because I really don't like to sell real estate. I, I like to, to, to keep, hold on to it because that's really where things go well, especially income producing real estate, which is most of what we're talking about here right on your cash flow show, whether that's commercial or residential. I do kind of like commercial myself. You just have to be careful with it because you can lose a lot easier commercial than residential. It's so not saying sell your stuff, but uh, you know, I like to buy, you know, I, I usually have a goal of trying to buy two buildings a year. Uh, nothing that's too amazing or fancy, but I like to buy new stuff so you're not having to dump a bunch of money into maintenance and you have to make sure that you can afford it. You want to make sure that you have tenants that are paying your bills for you. And it can be rent houses. It can be, you know, I, I like office warehouses because those tenants are sticky. Uh, rents uh, increase. They've increased a lot lately, but they usually increase slowly. But they're just kind of like own it and forget it. Very low on the property management side. Uh, the, the the trades that, that have those buildings usually take care of them because they use them so much. and and, uh, and they're important to them. But without digressing too much, it's, it's kind of like if, if the system's working and you have that, that multiplier effect, keep going. Keep going unless you really have an opportunity outside because the grass can look greener, and maybe it is, but the people that are doing it probably have a lot of experience to it. doesn't mean you can't go get the experience. It just, you just got to be careful if you want to go, you know, if you want to go burn the ships, uh, and, and start something new, right? Sell everything and, and, get in, and get into something. I think for people that are in active management businesses, for instance, hospitality or restaurateurs or, or you know, kind of grinded out businesses and they want to they sell and they want to put their money into something, again, you know, I've said it already, go find a great passive manager for a while, maybe learn from them, you know, take a little bit of the money out, do it yourself, see if you like it. If you're passionate about it and you enjoy life doing it, Man, go do that. I, I, I think the older I get, um, I'm, I'm, it's like a, I have these two philosophies. One is really do things that you can enjoy and be passionate about. 
the other side is do what works. And, and sometimes those can really be in opposition. If you can find, you know, something that you can be passionate about and it works, you know, maybe stay there for as long as possible. Because, um, you know, life is, is, a, is a summation of, of the things that we do every day. So hopefully the things you're doing, you can enjoy. It's not all roses. Um, but if you can have a good amount of roses and you have good people around you, it's probably worth it. If you can see other people have success, then that can be really cool too. Um, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, business is hard. Um, everyone, you know, kind of wants to retire except for me, but I'm sure at some point when I get tired enough, I will want to retire and find really good passive management funds to go put money into. And then just, I don't know, I don't know what I'll do. Hang out on the beach. Maybe I'll probably get hot and I'll go to the mountains and then I'll get cold and I'll try to find something. So it's kind of how life is, is you're adapting, you're changing. I think knowing yourself is really important. Um, you know, we didn't ask about this, but anytime we hire someone, um, I haven't taken an Enneagram personality test. Because Enneagram um, really kind of looks at motivations in your life, what you really want, what you're afraid of, uh, what, what your, your wounds are. You know, taking some time to really figure out what are you about? And therefore, what are the activities that you're really about? Uh, how do you want to spend your life and what type of people do you want to be with? I think those are the really big things. So if you can align your business interests around that, that's probably a pretty good life. That's, so that, that, might, that might be the best thing I have for you, Pascal, is, is just don't try to be someone you're not. I'm, I'm an Enneagram 8 wing 7. There are certain things that I hate, certain jobs that I would hate. And there are certain things that I really like. You know, I like running a business. Not always that good at it. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes it's super stressful. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still it's still pretty fun. It's still pretty rewarding. I I can't do a lot of the things that other people can do, and so I don't want to try to do those things. I just want to do the things that are kind of in my lane. I have limitations, but I just got to do the best I can, and, and hopefully help some people that are around. That's maybe that's where we kind of end up. Whether it's real estate or stocks or crypto or cash flow, whatever it is, is you know, can we have a good life inside? That's it. I love it. Vincent, this has been incredible. Where can, uh, where can people go learn more about you, your fund, and, and the offerings that you have? Oh, appreciate that, Pascal. They can go to stallioncap, that's stalliancap.com, Stallion Capital Management, learn about our funds, learn about our investment strategies. If they're wanting to borrow money, they can go to stallionfunding.com. And I'm happy to finance those real estate projects that are going to change your life and the community that you choose to put them in. So thank you for the opportunity, Pascal. I had a great time talking. Likewise, likewise. Thank you, man. All right. Now I have some final thoughts for our listeners. There are over 350 of you who are already on our email list. But if you aren't already, if you'd like access to our database of private investment opportunities that we see every week and get a first look at the opportunities that we put together here at Grow Your Cashflow, you can join our investment club at growyourcashflow.io. Now, if you found this particular episode helpful, don't forget to share it with that friend that might benefit. Uh, and lastly, if you have any questions or suggestions or just love the particular show, reach out to me on Twitter at Pascal Wagner, number one. Thanks, guys. Uh, and I will see you on the next show.